people say, well, there's a hospital down there. Why don't these people go to the hospital? Well, because they don't feel that they're treated just. They don't feel that the clinicians understand them. They're scared that their data is going to be used in a different way. But I want to go back to this institutional racism thing, that they're treated differently. It's almost like they got to come in door B. That's never the intent of the hospitals. But when you have staff that's uninformed and not culturally competent, you're going to have those things naturally happen. Welcome back to Danforth Dialogues, a podcast designed to unlock the wisdom of today's most influential leaders and empower the change makers of our future. Each month, Morehouse School of Medicine President and CEO, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice, sits down with highly respected leaders to share stories of resilience and historic initiatives that have led to significant human advancements. Thank you for allowing us to invest in your leadership. In this month's podcast, Dr. Montgomery Rice and Lloyd Dean, former CEO of Common Spirit Health, continued their discussion around the More in Common Alliance, an innovative partnership between each organization to significantly increase the number of minority health practitioners and help reduce health disparities in underserved communities across the country. In this conversation, we welcome a live audience with representatives from Common Spirit Health and Morehouse School of Medicine on hand to hear the discussion. Today's episode is the second of this two-part conversation around this historic alliance. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I'll turn it right over to Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice to pick up this conversation. Thank you for that, Lord. I, I, you, you've touched on several things that I think that um, you and I talked about on our Saturday morning, sometimes Sunday morning conversations. And a large part of it was about leadership values, mission alignment of our two organizations. And just like for Morehouse School of Medicine, our vision is leading the creation and advancement of health equity. And my team sort of laughed at me, I think, early on when I said, okay, I want you to put note cards at all the phone stations, and whenever somebody answers the phone, they have to say, leading the creation and advancement of health equity. So when you call Morehouse School of Medicine, that's what we say, because we really needed to indoctrinate ourselves with understanding what this vision was, because it was informed by the stakeholders. And I think that when I think about what you and I did on those Saturday mornings, is that we started to shape a vision for this partnership that was informed by our many stakeholders. So tell me what it is your vision is for this more in common alliance. And, and, and let me say that the launching pad for the answer to this question is, um, you know, uh, Dr. Rice and the Morehouse School of Medicine, even with the notoriety that it has, the legacy that it has, it was important to Common Spirit Health that our mission, our visions, and our values were in line. And after my conversations, we talk about our Saturday conversations, uh, my wife was like, why are you talking to this woman every Saturday? <laughs> and my uh, husband too. <laughs> or, uh, and, and, and like on Sundays, and, and I said, it's business. Well, it's business every Saturday? Or, uh, so, so we laugh about that because her husband was thinking <laughs> was the same thing. What, who is this yeah, what's the, who is this Lloyd guy calling me, like calling you like at, at nine at night? But uh, by the way, 
that's what leadership is about. Because yeah. we, when we, when we have an issue or when we need we to pick get up something the phone. done, you can't. We can't. Everything can't be scheduled right. on Zoom, and everything can't wait. They're they're a priority. Sure. But but assuming our mission, vision, and values were uh, uh, aligned, um, our vision for Common Spirit Health is, um, and I'll just aggregate it in the following. Um, we are really focused on the vulnerable and the poor communities and creating access for all in this country, particularly the vulnerable. And particularly, um, I will say, within that category, the vulnerable for, for uh, communities uh, that don't have equal access. And many times that's communities of color. Um, and so we were so in line with the work that the Morehouse School of Medicine was focused on health inequities, health justice, on research. Uh, how do we apply research to uh, solve uh, problems? But particularly also uh, this issue of justice and fairness within black communities and other communities of color that is at the, at the heart of that is a lack of clinicians of color that either wanna stay in the community or that people to the community can relate to and feel understands who I am, understands my world, understands me, um, you know, as um, an ethnic diverse people person. And understanding that the system has got to be open and friendly to me. A lot of, I mean, you, you, you have been a part and conducted these studies about why. Uh, people don't access the system. People say, well, there's a hospital down there. Why don't these people go to the hospital? Well, because they don't feel that they're treated with just, they don't feel that the clinicians understand them. They don't feel like, um, you know, they're scared that, you know, they're going to be, their data is going to be used in a different uh, way. But I want to go back to this institutional racism thing that they're, they're, they're treated differently. Uh, it's almost like they got to come in door B instead of door uh, eight. That's never the intent of the hospitals. But when you have staff that's uninformed and not culturally, to use the term you talk a lot about, culturally competent, you're gonna have those things naturally happen. So this issue of health inequity, health justice, uh, and doing something about this nation's huge gap in African-American physicians and clinicians, but clinicians in general, and, and particularly in vulnerable um, communities into vulnerable populations in certain in, in groups of ethnicity, when we, when I met you, when I read about the vision, the journey, the mission of the, the, the strategic framework of the Morehouse School of Medicine, uh, when Kevin and I were talking, it was easy. We said, and of course, the legacy of, and, and of course, you know, um, you know, the power and the presence and the skill sets that, you know, you at the helm have uh, manifested at the Morehouse School of Medicine. We said, that's so much what we're trying to do. So it made it made a sense. And when we looked at our footprint. When we looked at the capabilities of leaderships, the, the, the skills, the notoriety, the uh, competencies of the faculty, and again, the mission and the vision that you set out, 
uh, we said, this is God's gift for the partnership. And that's why it, 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 it happened. And whether it's through, you know, the, the GME, uh, whether that, you know, because we, we have this national uh, footprint, but still there were huge gaps in our ability to get enough physicians that Dr. Uh, McGinn is in, in, in charge of, and particularly um, uh, residents and, and physicians of color, we had this challenge of getting them to stay in the community. They, you know, they'd be trained, but they didn't stay in the community. So um, that's why this is, I think, the, um, the greatest, I think history will show that if the things that Dr. Rice and I and both of our organizations are focused on in investing tens of millions of dollars in, if we're successful, we have an opportunity to change the landscape, not just of common spirit health, but of the nation, of the nation. There is nobody else that is positioned as well as our partnership, but we have an alliance, but we got to take advantage of it and we got to move faster and there's a lot of things that we're, we've got to do. But if we are successful, and one thing I know about this lady, failure is not an option. And a lot of people will have burned, should, should, should there be failure. Yeah, right. and, and I feel, I feel the same way. This is our moment. This is our opportunity. And our nation needs it. We can be an example for so many other systems because we can't do it all. We know that. But everything that I see, and again, we've got challenges ahead of us. Um, but Lord, this sort of builds this upon this builds upon what you have already done. You are were one of the architects with President Obama when they were going through the Affordable Care Act. And that was about access, access, access. And several of us were in the background cheering you all on, but we were saying, hey, even if you give everybody an insurance card today, that's not necessarily going to increase access. And it's not necessarily going to lead to improved health outcomes for others. So I sort of see this as a continuation of your work. We really did make some big differences, right, in access with the Affordable Care Act. I mean, you know, fast forward, even though we had four years of a lull, we kept pushing through, and now we are beginning to see some of the benefits of the ACA with more people having access to care. But the pandemic, and I want to spend a little bit of time on the pandemic. What the pandemic showed us, that you can show up with your insurance card. You can show up to the place where there is supposed to be a test or a treatment opportunity. And the system doesn't always acknowledge your access card. And so 
what we are talking about doing in this alliance is training and educating more culturally competent, more creating cultural humility within our organizations such that no one comes to the door and they're turned away because of something superficial or some other idea of what other people have about their potential. Would you agree with that? I, t I totally um, um, affirm that and agree with it, and I, and I see it every day. I mean, think about this. In this country, 20%, um, 20% of all of the Medi-Cal and Medicaid eligible, eligible constituencies will not access the system. So to your point, they have the card that says they have coverage, but they won't access the system. So why? Let me put an exclamation point on that. When you go back to COVID, we could not, well, I'll, I'll start with today. As we sit here today, there's 58 million people in this country, in our country, that have never had the first vaccination. That's right. Think about that. In vulnerable communities, communities of color, the numbers are even higher. Now, we can talk about history. We can talk about all of the reasons of that. But we have some culpability and responsibility, even as a health sector, for that. We have not made it welcoming. We have not addressed uh, how people are treated. We have not uh, created access points in communities that are equal. Um, we have not realized that it's more than just healthcare. There are so many more determinants of health, and, and you folks know that, so I'm not going to walk you uh, through that. So to your point, which I think you've articulated um, beautifully, just having an access point down the street or having a card that says, um, you know, I, I, I have uh, insurance, uh, that doesn't carry the day. We have to make, make it inviting and welcoming and that people feel comfortable. And we also have to, this cultural competency issue is, is key. And you've done some of the research, we've been a part of the research about why people with access don't go to the system. What do they tell us? They tell us, I, I don't feel the system wants me there, really. Number two, I get treated like I'm different than everybody else. Uh, number uh, three, uh, I have to worry uh, about um, if I access the system, is the system going to turn against me in one way or another, sharing my data, all of those uh, kinds of, of things. So uh, it's a complex issue, but I, I just want to acknowledge something that you said. I think we have made a lot of progress, mm -hmm. but it's not nearly enough. And to your point, one of the things that uh, pains me and that I feel a responsibility for as a leader in this sector, in this country, is that people died needlessly 
during COVID because they either felt they didn't have access, they didn't access the system, um, and nobody gets up in the morning saying, I want to die. So there are legitimate reasons uh, there. And this country is better than this. We're the most resourced company on the planet. So this healthcare for all, justice for all, and I haven't even gotten in to the distinctions between how women are treated and how research is done on women versus research done on men. So I'll just leave it at health justice um, uh, in the agri. But that's the bad news uh, that you know people died and we're still in COVID um, right now. I'm, I was sitting in LAX waiting for a late arrival and there was a guy that was up ahead of me and he was going on and on and on about and he had to be, uh, you know, I look good for my age. So he had to be, he, he, had, he had to be older than I am. Um, and he was honest to God, and, and, and it pains me. He was saying, I've, I've not been vaccinated. It is a social experiment being driven by uh, the government. Uh, he was an African-American man. He said, a particular, if you go back in history, um, they don't understand. We're not going to be a guinea pig uh, twice. Um, I, I do everything that they tell me to do, I do the opposite of, because I know um, that you know, they're trying to make African-Americans in this country extinct. And I believe, and he said, the Bible says, that God has given you everything that you need. So I believe that um, I, and he said, I've never had uh, any vaccinations and I've never let my kids have any vaccination. And the lady said, you talk about like a polio or anything. He said, I don't believe in it. Now that was an extreme case, but think about that. One way or another, there's 60 million people that are making similar types of decisions, maybe for different types of, of reasons. So our job is beyond the medical, clinical side of what we it do. Sure We've sure got is. to educate, inspire, motivate, uh, and not give up on making sure that what we're trying to do for communities, change health status, that we're dealing with the totality of what it means to be not just in a community, but of oh, a community. Okay. And, and, and Lord, for our audience, so that they know, for those out there who are listening, the More in Common Alliance between Morehouse School of Medicine and Common Spirit Health, we, we, we state it's a 10 year because we think it's got 10 years for us to build, but it's forever, partnership, where we are going to launch five regional medical campuses across this country and 10 graduate medical education programs with no less than three disciplines at each of those sites. And we're gonna increase the number of students who come to Morehouse School of Medicine, recruiting them from those communities that we are placing the undergraduate medical education programs so that that will entice them to wanna to come back, doubling the class size of Morehouse School of Medicine and then those students going out in their third and fourth year, doing their third and fourth year rotations back into those communities, and then choosing our residency training programs 
And when they are fully vetted, we'll be graduating 300 more black and Latino physicians in this country, as well as PA students. But that's not all. We also have a research work stream that is really focusing on how do we really do precision medicine and genomics and real-time research in conjunction with the community so that the solutions will be available to them. We will deliver upon that promise of science to the community. And what's cross-cut into all of this is the cultural competence that we're building in both of our organizations to ensure that the community knows that we see them first as we are doing this work. So I am very, very excited about this. I think that there's mission alignment, our values. We didn't, we didn't even have to um, read our values to each other. It was evident in the people that we work with and the people that we work for, and we work for the community. And so I want to give this opportunity for some of our audience participants to ask a couple of questions. Here you have a leader. His career spans many decades. He started out. Not too many now. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's, let's keep these decades. See, I know, see, even in uh, public school, I know what a decade is. That's uh, 10 years we're talking here. We don't want, we don't want to get too many decades. In. No, I'm, I'm kidding. He started you know out as a teacher, y'all. He started out as a yeah. teacher. And he became a CEO of, I think it's the largest, but he says it's the second largest not-for-profit it's kind of like Atlanta Airport. Are you the busiest? Or, <laughs> yeah, right, a stretcher, right, right. or is it Chicago or whomever? We all busy. There's enough work out there for all of us. But it's a, it's a not-for-profit, non-profit health system that cares for the underserved. Thousand, how many hospitals? Uh, we, it, it depends on which day, but uh, we, we, we round it uh, down to 150. 150 hospitals with multiple thousands of points of care, of yep. lots of points of care. And so a footprint that allows us to have impact and a vision, having met the chairman of the board and the sisters who are part of the board, I understand what their commitment is to this community, to the communities that they're serving. So I want to open up to the audience the opportunity to ask a couple of questions as we start to close out our program. And please introduce yourself. See, I always like the plants in the audience. You, <laughs> see, you know, you know they got the hard questions. And everybody else they can ask the easy ones. But go right ahead. Mr. California. Yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully not too hard. Walter Conwell, Chief Diversity Inclusion Officer for the Morehouse School in Madison. Uh, Mr. Dean, thank you so much uh, for um, your reflections and um, uh, truly your guidance about leadership. One of the other things that really strikes me, I think strikes many of us about you, is your uh, authenticity and your humility. If you can speak to us a little bit about how you maintain those qualities uh, despite um, you know, the, the challenges that arise uh, with leadership and despite, obviously, um, the heights that you've risen to. Yeah, thank you. It's a, a, a great uh, question, and thank you for your uh, uh, comment. 
Um, I was taught, and, and, and it, this goes back to uh, kind of how I was raised uh, uh, by my, my mother and uh, father, is that, you know, never forget where you came from. Um, and uh, always try to navigate and think about where you're trying to go. And those are two powerful but very simple uh, phrases. And I learned early in my professional journey what I said to you. It's not about me. I mean, it's about, you know, I'm, I'm gifted to be, and I think leadership is a privilege. Um, and I don't think of myself as a, as a big deal. I mean, I like that I've had access to different things, and I, you know, and I love the fact that, you know, there's something about me, but more about our ministries that, you know, I've, you know, spoken at the World Economic Forum for the leaders of the world. Oh, oh, see, the leaders of the world. Um, and, you know, and presidents and all that kind of stuff. But I don't consider myself any different than any employee who works for. I have one job to do. They have a number of jobs to do. But I never forget where I come from. And I never forget that um, all of the great leaders that I've seen in my life uh, have been very humble people, starting with my mother. Very, very humble. And I've seen people go up the ladders of success um, and walk on people, but they forget that you got to come back down that ladder. At some point, you're going to come back down. And the same people that you passed and stepped on on the way up are going to make sure that every rung in the ladder is gone when you come down. So your landing is going to be hard. And I've always found that it's treating people with dignity and respect in how you want to be treated in leadership, even though you have a job to do and sometimes you have to make a hard decision, will serve you well. I'm, you know, Dr. Rice and I are the same. Um, we will seize these moments because it's a part of what we do and the passion that we have to be on panels like this and to do, I mean, she does global speaking and national speaking. Uh, but it's a privilege to do that. It's a privilege to do that. But the moment we think it's all about Lloyd Dean or Dr. Montgomery Rice, the whole equation right. changes. So I just want to treat people and I want people to respect me for who I am as Lloyd Dean and you know, people always ask me, and I don't know why, <laughs> maybe I am getting old, uh, you know, what do you want on your tombstone? Isn't that something to ask? <laughs> um, what do you want on your tombstone? And, 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 I, and I have thought about it, particularly during COVID. Um, doing COVID, you got to thought about all, it. <laughs> all I want, and, and I, it took me a long time, is that he came, he saw, he tried to do good, he tried to treat people with dignity and respect, he tried to bring a little humor to a challenging world, but he tried to leave it a little bit better than he found. That's all. If I think if I can accomplish that in my life, it will have been a life at least worthy of this earth.
So you're trying to sound like you're retiring. You're not going. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. All right, let's take another question, please. Good afternoon, Mr. Dean, Madam President. David Heffner, Vice President for Strategy and Institutional Effectiveness at the Morehouse School of Medicine. I would be remiss if you're in, you're in Morehouse College, only African-American male college in the history, in, in, in the world. Um, you're an African-American man. I can, I can imagine that not many people who look like you are in the seats that you sit in, in the halls that you walk, in the, in the boardrooms that you commune. Reflect a bit about what, what being an African-American man and your, your position means at the state that we are as a nation, in which social injustice is so prevalent, but also the, 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 the ways in which African-American men are being treated um, in the world. Yeah, and you know, President Obama said this, and uh, others have said this, Martin Luther King, Dr. Dr. King said this too. Um, and it's unfortunate, but in our country, but, but other countries, but let's talk about the United States. It doesn't matter what you accomplish. It doesn't matter how much money you have. We are still a nation where people see you first as a black man. And with that comes a cascade of challenges, uh, but, I'm, but I also try to see some of them as opportunities for change. Um, uh, I'll, I'll give you an, an example. Three weeks ago, um, for the gala, uh, I went shopping at Neiman Marcus um, in LA. And there was an older lady, I'd say she was maybe 75, and I'm sure it was with her granddaughter. And I was going up to the men's floor on the third floor, and she was going up to the women's floor, I know, uh, or the pediatric. All those were above me. They were at the elevator. I came up in to get onto the elevator. The elevator came, we were both waiting, and her daughter, the little daughter, went to go on. And she said, no, 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 no. We'll take the next one. And you know what? And, and you know why? It wasn't because you know she had a epiphany about I forgot something in the car. She did not want to get on that elevator with me. I've been in cities on business for common spirit health, where I know there were cabs sitting there, and the guy wouldn't. Uh, take me. I, I use those examples not for people to feel sorry for me, but this suit, this title, I get no immunity for being a black, a black male. But I also do not let it limit me in what I want to do, going to do, who I am as a human being. Now, I, it motivates me to make change and to, to speak to these issues openly, transparently, and honestly. And right now, in my lifetime, this nation has never been this divided. Yes. And don't get me going on politics, because that'd be a whole podcast by itself. Um, but it hurts. It hurts me deeply. It hurts me when I see it. But that's the bad part of it. The good part is this platform that we have, 
this bowling pulpit that we have, it triple downs my accountability, responsibility, and passion about doing everything that I can to bring about uh, change. But it's hurtful. I wonder about what my grandkids, if we don't do something about this path we're on, are going to experience. I mean, think of the shootings, the mass shootings, uh, the last five, what they've been about. Every one of them, every one of them has been racially motivated. I mean, um, a Latino women in a, in a, working in a, a spa, we know the, the, the African-Americans, Asian. I mean, it is not just limited to us. So this is a dangerous, dangerous situation that we have to address. Think about LGBT. Um, think about what we're debating you know, in the Supreme Court and the positions it's taking on different things. I'm not talking about the most recent, you know, because they haven't officially um, adjudicated on that. But some of these, some of these voting right things. Um, but it is easy, and I have friends that are clinically depressed, and it is, it is eating them. It is overcoming their sense of pride and dignity in who they are. I will never, ever let that happen to me. Uh, it is a fight that must be fought. And those of us in leadership have a responsibility and accountability um, that goes, around, goes, goes along with this opportunity that we have to speak out, to make change. I still say that the United States of America, with will, could be the United States of America. But it has to be purposeful willful and justice, fairness has to be not just an amendment, it has to be the reality. And, and, and Lord, when you, when you say what you say with the passion you say it with, it's really about being a leader. And all of us guys are leaders. We all have circles of influence. It matters what we do when we sit in the seat. And my favorite slogan is that we are the ones we have been waiting for. There really is nobody else. At this moment in time, we must step up in our circle of influence and make sure that, first of all, we're doing the right things, but then make sure that the right things get done. You know, leadership is more than just getting things done. It is really about making sure the right things get done. There's some prioritization to what leaders have to think about what gets done. And, and I think for us sitting in our seats, we decided that we were going to do something. We knew that we were in the middle of a pandemic. We knew that our teams, some of them had never really met each other in person. And some of them are meeting each other for the first times in person. But we asked them to come together to form these work streams 
and I am amazed at what they accomplished over Zoom and through interactions because we had an alignment of mission, values, and vision. And as we close, I would like to say to them that in the midst of a crisis, leaders step up and not back. In the midst of a crisis, leaders respond and not react. Leaders look to lead and to move the needle, but not just to mitigate, but you really look to lead. And that's what each of you all have done. You listen to what we ask you to do. Sometimes I know it might have felt like we were telling them to do it. But we were asking in that leadership way. How about that? We were asking. Yeah. 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 But the key thing is, is that you all stepped up. And the thing that I know that happened for you all is that it's becoming a, not just a good partnership, but a great partnership because it's grounded in vision. The partnership is not gonna fail. And it's not gonna fail because we actually do see the same future. We see a future that will allow for whether you are a short person, a medium height person, or a tall person, if you need one box or two boxes or three boxes in order to be able to see over that fence, that you're gonna to get to be able to step over that fence, step on that box. And the tall person standing up that day who can already see over the fence won't try to take your box. They'll give you theirs. That's what partnership is about. It is also about an invincible commitment to joint success. An invincible commitment to joint success, particularly if you are not focused on who gets the credit. In your work streams, you're working hard, you're wondering who's gonna get the first name on the paper. Doesn't really matter as long as your name is on the paper. But the most important thing is, is that there's a paper, that there's been some work done that will allow us to tell a story. This partnership offers the opportunity for us to model what success looks like and what's possible when you take two organizations that have the assets that we have. Common Spirit Health, has one of the largest footprints in this country for care delivery. Morehouse School of Medicine knows how to educate and train healthcare providers, clinicians, biomedical scientists, public health leaders, public policy leaders that the world needs. If you combine that, you have a model for success we want other people to steal our idea. We want to write a playbook for them so that we see more and more in common alliances. And finally, good partnerships endure 
because they create an impactful legacy that supersedes the partners. This is not about Lloyd. This is not about Valerie. This is not about any one of us as an individual. It really is about the honor that has been bestowed upon us to be able to do this work. And if we do this right, we won't have to worry about what they write on our tombstone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because the legacy that we are going to have created will supersede them knowing our name. They will know the more in common alliance name, and they will know that it was about human kindness, good, and health equity. I thank you all for joining us, and I'm going to let my colleague make some closing yeah, statements, please. And, and my closing statement is uh, just two uh, points. Number one is that, um, you know, we've talked about some of the challenges and what it's like, you know, and, and by the way, you, your, your second career is already carved for you. Um, I've uh, sat with a lot of people. Uh, this has been one of the most enjoyable and something that I will forever cherish. Uh, but I just want you to know, look to your left and you look to the right of where you are sitting. That is the future of our country. That is the future of this country. Now, if you don't like the person you see, uh, <laughs> you might want to get up and move. Uh, but, but I say that seriously. You are where you are for a reason. I believe that God moves in mysterious ways. Um, you are sitting here and you are doing what you're doing for a reason. And in the midst of all these challenges that Dr. Rice and I have talked about, people always ask me, what gives me hope? And I say, look in the mirror. You give me hope. The last thing I would say is that I didn't get a chance to even tell Dr. Rice this. Um, many of you know, and Dr. Rice was kind enough to attend, um, uh, we had a, a human kindness gala recently. Um, and with all that's going on in the world, um, um, I had invited uh, the vice president. She can't leave Washington because of two things, COVID and the tie votes. Uh, there are too many votes coming up. Uh, but she sent a nice letter. But I did want to tell you um, that um, I got a, uh, uh, a two-paragraph letter that was handwritten from the president of the United States. But here's why I'm bringing this up here. Here's what he said. And, you know, and they always have to remind the presidents of the things you've done and the things that you're doing you know, so that they can write about it. Uh, but there's two sentences that he said that are so germane here. He said, and I want to acknowledge uh, the great partnership that Common Spirit Health has with the Morehouse School of Medicine. That was one, one sentence, but, but here, here is the, here. But here is the second sentence that I thought was so powerful, uh, so humbling, but kind of scary. He said, the nation is watching. 
because we need this partnership to be successful. Now that was now that I don't know who told him, uh, but to see that in writing, uh, and I and I and I do know Joe. I'm sorry, Mr. President. Uh, so he he had to approve that line uh, for it to be uh, sent to me. The world is watching what we do, and we are counting on all of you to help ensure that we do the right thing and that we are successful. There are millions and millions of people who will ultimately be the judge, and I thank you. Thank you for listening to another presentation of Danforth Dialogues with Morehouse School of Medicine President and CEO, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. Today's discussion was the second of a two-part conversation with Lloyd Dean, the CEO of Common Spirit Health around the More in Common Alliance between Morehouse School of Medicine and Common Spirit Health. Subscribe to Danforth Dialogues on your favorite podcast app to receive new episodes straight to your feed every month and help us empower future leaders by rating this show on Apple Podcasts, plus sharing it with a friend. If you have any suggestions on future guests or content that would best equip leaders, we would love to hear your ideas. Simply email us at danforthdialogues at msm.edu. The world needs your courageous leadership now more than ever. So thank you for being the type of leader that chooses to step up and not back. Mm -hmm.